0: Welcome to a new episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Before I get into introducing this next guest that I'm so excited to share with you, I wanted to tell you something that I'm really excited about, especially with Valentine's Day coming up. You know, uh, couples are getting really excited, you know, to celebrate their love, which, you know, we could celebrate any day, but let's do it on Valentine's Day. For the old single people who are like, I'm single, what's going on? Valentine's Day is coming. And we don't want you to marinate in the sadness of singledom, we want you to celebrate in the joy of singledom. And for that reason, my partner Kylie and I, we are doing a five-day challenge to become a mate magnet. What a great term, right? Become a mate magnet. How to attract the type of person you actually desire, You know, the type of people you want to swipe right to, all that jazz. And all you have to do to sign up, it's completely free. It's go to bit.ly slash mate magnet. So bit.ly backslash m-a-t-e-m-a-g-n-e-t. So bit.ly dot mate magnet. Now, without further ado, I wanted to introduce Dr. Terry Cole, who's a psychotherapist from New York City. She's got decades of experience. I have to admit that the first, you know, like eight minutes... Something like that. I was nervous, man. I was like fanboying over this lady. She's just brilliant. She's direct. She's straight to the point. You know how I love it. And you're going to love this episode. We cover so many different subjects, uh, even including codependency, which I know is such a fascinating subject for me. So I just want to nerd out on it all the time. But she shares the brilliance of her work and what she's seen over the years of working with so many singles and so many couples. So... Please welcome me, you know, help me in welcoming Dr. Terry Cole. All right. Well, Terry Cole, I'm so excited to have you on my podcast because I've been such a huge fan of your podcast. And I know that, you know, I, I don't want to call it out as you nerd out on boundaries and love, but I nerd out on boundaries and love. And so I thought, man, I've got to have this amazing psychotherapist on my podcast. And, you know, you're well is seasoned the right word. I don't know. It's, it's, um, 20 yeah. over 20 years. Like tell us a little bit about your work so people can get to know you a little bit.
1: Well, first, let me just say, thank you so much. Cause I'm also a fan of your podcast and I'm super psyched that we're doing it because really we both sort of geek out on the same things, human relationships, right? So how did I get here? Is that the question or what do I do? What is the question?
0: Yeah. What? How did you become this, um, yeah, psychotherapist? What drove you to it? What do you do? Where's your work?
1: Okay. Well, I actually, I have been a psychotherapist for about 22 years, but I was a talent agent representing supermodels prior to that for
0: almost a decade. <laughs> That's quite a transition.
1: Yeah. You know, it's kind of so much the same though. You're really just being a problem solver, a therapist, a listener. So people always say it's so different. You're like, no, I just wanted to be paid for what I was actually doing. So when I got to the end of my, my career, I kept thinking like I was chasing something um, very ambitious. And so by my early thirties, I was basically running a, 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 you know, a talent agency and negotiating these contracts. And I kept thinking the next job, the next famous client, the next paycheck, more dollars, like these things were all going to, give me this feeling that I wanted. And then I kind of got to the top of my own little heap of, you know, industry. And then that, the feeling I was seeking wasn't there. And so I knew I had to make some kind of a change, but it was a hard change to make in that, you know, everyone in the world thought I was insane. Like, why would you leave this career? (laughs) And I finally just had to say to my father, dad, I'm not happy. Like you cannot get it. And that's cool. I love you. I don't need anything from you, but you don't, I don't need your permission to like change my freaking career, you know? So I ended up going back to, um, I went to grad school at NYU and got my master's and became a psychotherapist. And I knew from the, the moment that in, in my um, entertainment career, there was no way to deny the last probably two years that my primary interest was in the mental health of my clients Definitely not the Pantene deal. Definitely not (laughs) negotiating a movie deal, you know? Yeah. I was like, wow, I'm going to get her off heroin right on getting people into drug treatment clinics and a million people into therapy. And I was like, this is definitely what you
0: want to do. You could feel that calling from within. Yeah. You know, I know that feeling too. I used to be a pharmaceutical rep actually, which is always shocking to say now. Yeah. And I was,
1: I, I don't picture you as that, but yeah.
0: Well, I was so obsessed with understanding people and their behavior and their choices. And then when I had a relationship that fell apart, I was like, wait, I'm such a good communicator. Why am I so bad at talking about my feelings? And it became sort of mm. the drive from there. And it's, it's interesting, you know, like even in your work where you were doing all these big deals and sort of destination seeking, like when I get to the place that then, mm-hmm. and to just have that realization that you can, you know, you were in your skills in that work too.
1: Yeah. Yes. Adding that value. People always wanting to tell me, but <laughs> since I was a child, though, I mean, all of my life, people, strangers, you just, you know, when you're an empath, you're just basically broadcasting that, especially before you know anything about energy work. Mm-hmm. So people would just find me and be like, I just need to tell you this. I'm like, wow. Okay. I, I guess I you know. And I would always get into their story and try to help them. So I do think that there is some some destiny, some dharma. And definitely by the end of what I was doing in entertainment, there were so many, I had so many problems because I only was in the world of modeling the last like two, three years of my career. And I was like, wow, this world is really twisted. And I was trying to change it, you know, change the way that the models were treated, change the language, how we refer to them, all of this stuff where, you know, I mean, I thought I could change that broken system. But in the end, I was feeling like the system might be changing me in a way that I didn't love. Mm. So I really did need to to get out.
0: And so you go back to NYU. What a huge leap to take, too. And, and, I mean, I had a similar conversation with my father, actually, when I left. He was like, why don't you just take a leave of absence? And I was like, Dad, Mm. that's like saying I don't believe I can do it. You know, like that's, that's right. like not trusting and, and for you to move it. So you said, as soon as you started the work, you were like, yeah, this is my jam.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, my, my first, I took two classes now matriculating before I was actually full on getting my master's. And I just remember the first class, I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm so lit up. And I was in this massive learning curve and it didn't matter. I mean, the decision I had to make was, you know, do you go from making a lot of money and having a lot of access and prestige to things that I didn't actually care about? I stopped drinking when I was 21. Like that whole scene of like, have to go out and be seen. I was like, never. I always would hire assistants and junior agents who were single and wanted that life. Because even then, even though I was single, I did not want that life. I was like, I want to go home, take a bath and relax.
0: (laughs) You like want to subcontract your partying. Smart. Oh, it's so weird. That's pretty much
1: exactly what I did. I was like, I need someone who's young and wants to wear high heels. Not me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now you've done, you know, you look back at over two decades of working with, I would imagine the most wide array of people and it's culminated into some really powerful courses that you've created and, I'm wondering, so like over the last, over two decades, what are sort of some things that you see as the common struggles, pitfalls, uh, opportunities, I think is maybe a better word, for people Mm -hmm. in relationship?
1: Well, so many of the women who are in my practice, my practice was predominantly very successful women, but it was always like the one area that they couldn't negotiate with all of their brains and with all of their success was love, even the ones who are married and had what looked like what everyone else wants, right? The 2.2 kids, the nice home, living in Greenwich, you know, money's on track. But those women I saw over and over again coming into my practice CFOs, COOs, famous pop stars, like all different kinds of people who, many of them, there's an illusion from the outside, like you've got it all figured out. And they would come in and be like, why do I feel dead inside? Like,
0: hmm.
1: why do I not? feel happy, and now I feel guilty because I have what all of my single friends want, supposedly, and I'm not happy. So that was one scenario, was people checking all the boxes and still not feeling it lit up about their life. And then there were the single women who just just couldn't figure out the dating thing. So either they would opt out of it altogether and be like, all right, it's not going to happen for me in this lifetime, fine, but I'll just have a crazy-ass career, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Or the ones who just keep dating the same like unavailable dude over and over again in a different format, you know?
0: Yeah. I definitely have a few followers and people I've worked with who have the redundant unavailable human issue. Yes, that's for sure. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. So with looking at this after many years in the trenches, I was like, there are themes. So I would just take copious notes throughout my entire practice where I was like, I'm doing my own research on what are the, the biggest struggles when it comes to love, fear, whatever it is. Like I used to be really into fear. I did a lot of talking about that. I did a TEDx on that. But then really love was always my actual gem because of my own life story. So I was those women who were coming to me. Uh-huh. I didn't think I would get married. I really had no interest in getting married. Um, because of my own, what I now call downloaded love blueprint, basically, from my parents, right? So you have this modeled behavior, and my parents, you know, we're we're pretty WASPy, so it was pretty mild. Like it isn't like it wasn't like crazy. There was no abuse. It just didn't look great. Uh-huh. I got divorced. My mother had uh, an affair with her boss at the IGA in the small town that I lived in. So that sucked. Oh my um, god. So yeah, just no. I wasn't like seventh grade you're just like oh
0: my god wow in an I, yeah in a small town i mean my dad and my dad's from a small town things don't travel uh slowly in small towns
1: no no everybody knew but it was funny i i have the same group of women friends that were they were my girlfriends since i was probably in second grade yeah and so even through that experience where it was kind of brutal, I call them my yayas. You know, they're like just my oldest pals that I'm still very close to. That it wasn't terrible. It was terrible because you don't want anybody knowing that this stuff is happening in your home. But luckily for me, I had this crew of amazing, supportive friends. So at least I didn't get ostracized socially. But what I learned, right? What did I learn from my mother? You know, men are people to be managed. Huh. So they're really not people that you're going to have this like awesome heart connection with. They're people that you're going to please walk on eggshells around, but you're really managing them. They think they're running everything. You let them think that. But there was like a <laughs> <laughs> bit of a male bashing thing, you know, where definitely men were inferior, even though they were the breadwinners. They, My father made all the money. So in one way, he really did have all the power. So with, with that, that, that view, right? So my, that, that's what I learned. So basically my parents taught me that that's what love is. Uh-huh. And I was like, no. So my mother's message to me was, you know, get your education on girl and make your own dough so that love could perhaps be a choice and not a need. Cause my mother got pregnant in her freshman year of college, I had to drop out. And, you know, she was with my dad, they were you know, college, you know, high school sweethearts. But, you know, so now to me, marriage basically is like a dream killer. I mean, unconsciously, yeah, that's really the connection where you're like, oh, so she worked in a factory for a year to make money so she could go to college. Cause both my folks grew up poor. And after literally she got pregnant on Thanksgiving break. Oh Lord and got married in the back of a Presbyterian church office over winter break. Doesn't that sound awesome? Don't you want to do that?
0: <laughs> and this is what everyone <laughs> hopes to elope like, right? Yeah, and, you know, even <laughs> going back to what board. you said about your your family and, and just this messaging about, you know, that men are think they're at the top of the matrix, but really <laughs> they're just part of the matrix that women design or that women um, or are actually leading. They took the, whatever, whichever pill made you see the matrix, the blue pill or the <laughs> That's fascinating. And then the the other side of the messaging, the blueprint, as you call it, is this idea that you, you don't want to, yeah, I did like that, you know, that you choose them rather than need them. But of course that can be so misunderstood uh, as a child that you should never need anybody.
1: Right. Oh yeah, I definitely, I mean, that, that's what came through to me was that I would just be, I mean, and then I had, I had a slightly more complicated thing because my father had, was a very gifted athlete and, you know, became very successful in a white collar world as well. But, you know, he had four daughters and definitely could have used a son and I was his fourth daughter. So I definitely grew up with the wrong gender feeling and being like, I'll be so successful that you'll forget you even wanted a son. Like you won't even know you, you I'll be more successful than any son you could have ever had. And so I really Mm. was incredibly ambitious, but you know, driven from not just ambition, right. Driven from fear, driven from trying to prove something kind of like when you're driven from a broken place. Yeah. Eh, not the best, you know, not, not the best, (laughs) not
0: the best. So those two things
1: together. (laughs) No, I mean, it can be very motivating, but you know, you want to do it really from choice, like because you are lit up about something, not because you want to prove somebody wrong, you know? Yeah. And and then it so becomes I think
0: that, um, attached to an outcome, you know, and that's where it becomes a little challenging.
1: Yeah. But if we go back to, let's say the the downloaded love blueprint, this, every single one of us has one. If you can imagine that it's like an architectural blueprint for a house mm-hmm. that someone else designed potentially centuries ago, and we don't even know that we have an option to change it, right? Because most of this is just laid down in your unconscious mind. And we don't even think we have a choice because at a very young age, these things are melded together. So people who grow up in a home with violence and they see violence between their parents. So if you imagine that love, that's one hand and violence is the other hand. Mm -hmm. And now they're put the fingers together. You're like, oh, look, love and violence go together. Yeah, This is your paradigm of what grown up love is. And so through the process of my own therapeutic journey, I realized from a brilliant therapist that I was with for many years that, you know, just because that was the way it was for my parents, or that's what my mother thought about men, that did not have to be the the way that it was for me. If I was willing to look at this unconscious, still charged material, and reject. It's sort of like differentiating from the family system.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying like, identify what your blueprint is, process the sort of unconscious, subconscious messages you've received growing up about love and what it was correlated with, communication, emotion, all that kind of stuff. And then um, Mm -hmm. rejecting the parts that don't, are you saying like that don't work for the story you want to create?
1: Exactly. So you're basically rewriting redesigning that architectural blueprint. And there's other things that come into it too, because it's not just what you saw, that's one huge influence, what your parents told you, that's another huge influence, but it's also the way that you were treated. So your own self-esteem, your own sense of worthiness, you know, kids who grow up in, let's say an alcoholic situation. So much of the time adult children of alcoholics have all these problems. Because you learn at a super young age that how you feel definitely does not matter because your job is to fulfill the needs and wants and desires of the adults, these very damaged adults in your life who can't take care of you, who aren't taking care of you. A lot of times you might be taking care of younger siblings. Uh And so this comes into the mix as well. So when I'm teaching this in my course, you know, you, you have the download and love blueprint, but there's all these other, basically these inventories that we take because each person is so incredibly unique, you know, like no matter what I say, like this way, I never believed really that there are books necessarily about like love. Here's the one, two, three, like you can totally do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: You know what I mean? Or even if it's a 40 step thing, it, it, to me, it's so, it has, so has to be personalized to you, you need to understand how the way you were treated negatively impacted your, or is still negatively impacting the way you think about yourself, how worthy you are. And also then it moved, then we move straight into how you treat yourself.
0: And so in that context, cause of course I think about, you know, as you were saying, everyone's story is so different and then we all have these unique experiences and yet, you know, we, there are these books then and things that say like, just do these three things or seven texts to get five things that will get your man or whatever it is. And they're just, they're so misleading because on such a deeper level, you have to understand your own story, how it impacts you today. And being able to change that and transform that. I mean, that's because your work now, I remember you were talking about, uh, you, you have a couple courses, one on boundaries. So of course, like, Ooh, yeah, I love boundaries. And the second Mm -hmm. one is, um, the love revolution is it, what is it the love revolution yeah yeah
1: real love revolution
0: yeah and so is that where you take them through a blueprint and and then navigate that story and how it shows up
1: yeah i mean it's way 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 more intense but yes yeah like right so you it. just do <laughs> these
0: five things and then you just get love
1: <laughs> you're like don't you just tell them how to text and then it's good That's it. yeah, yeah right
0: you just five texts <laughs> and get me. the guy you're done check it you're
1: perfect done. No, actually, with, with the the course, the, it this really came out of these two decades of working in the trenches, where I was like, there is a way to systematize this. So I, I consider myself basically like this ass-kicking GPS to help people find <laughs> the information. That's- that is within them. That
0: is literally like, my favorite Google. term. I'm sorry. Ass kicking GPS to help find the information within them. That is gold.
1: <laughs> but you, you know what I mean, right? Cause I certainly don't have their actual answers, but I do know where they should look and I will guide mm-hmm. them and hold hands and go into the scary basement. And I've got a little light on my head. You know, one of those headlamp things. <laughs> yeah, like, totally. Like I've got you covered, you know, I'll go down there and help you find it because the thing is if it isn't personalized which is why I only do this course once a year right it's a 10 week really ends up being like an 11 week course it's so intensive though it could i could never do it as like do it yourself good luck like ever it just it, it wouldn't because i need to be there answering specific questions that people have so it's super interactive but the way that i i it took forever to figure out like how am i going to take 20 years of information and put it into a one course when it comes to love. But I just did it over a couple of year period of time where I, can't, I brought it down to the five pillars of real love. Like what are the steps that I've helped people in my practice take that have actually led to them having a choice about who is in the front row of mm. their life?
0: I love that having a choice. And so, I mean, I want to know the five pillars, please. Can I tell you right now? <laughs> can we get into this? Come on.
1: <laughs> we sure can. So, the, <laughs> the ass kicking DPS. Yes.
0: Sorry, that is still <laughs> my favorite line. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So, so step one
1: pillar step one. one is self awareness. You have to be aware that you're unhappy. You have to be aware that something's not right. You have to be aware, like, wow, how is this the fifth person in a row that I've dated who is in some way unavailable? Mm-hmm. So, awareness. That's the beginning. It's almost like pre-contemplation where, you know, like before someone actually changes something, there's pre-contemplation, contemplation, this, and then action. So awareness is basically being willing to bring your attention into what went on. So we do a lot of inventories, childhood inventories there. So it's not just about your relationship with your folks and what you saw. It's about your relationship with siblings. It's about your relationship with friends. It's about how you felt about yourself. Did you have any problematic teachers? Because all of these people are players in how we end up relating to ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's pillar number one. And then pillar number two is self-knowledge. Now, this this is where the nitty-gritty of those details matter. I find that the resistance and at each pillar, we have different flavors of resistance. It's so interesting, but in pillar two, (laughs) which is self-knowledge, people just want to be like, why do I got to care? It was so long ago. I don't want to blame my parents. They didn't mean to do it. You know, all these things like there's a disloyalty fear. Uh. There's a desire to protect. There's also a desire to minimize what you experienced. So we deal with that in pillar two where there's now we're really collecting lots of information. So we're getting a full view of what had, what's gone on. And then the third pillar is self-acceptance.
0: How does that one go? Yeah, that's after, after one and two, that sounds like it's got some resistance to it. So what is the flavor of that?
1: Oh God, I have to say pillar three can, can be difficult In that you, I mean, I'm constantly reassuring whether it, you know, when I used to have a private practice, I would reassure the clients like, we're not vilifying your folks. Mm. We're all going to make the generous assumption that your single parent or both your parents did the very best that they could with the consciousness they had at the time. That's it. But here's who doesn't give a shit about what your parents were going through. And why they were, the, you know, they failed you's and you, and they failed you in the way that they did. The kid
0: mm-hmm.
1: within you doesn't care why they couldn't do it. So, in in the the real the acknowledgement right, the acceptance phase in this pillar three is realizing that you can honestly accept the ways that life wasn't perfect, without. Blaming your parents without vilifying, without, because so many of the women in my, who are drawn to my work are like, listen, this is my life. It's on me. Like I am a fully, you know, I'm a human being. Like I can, I I made these choices. Like almost like any hint of blaming their parents kicks up an array of different ways of trying to protect the parent. And what's really happening is, you know, we're protecting the child within Mm -hmm. because you figure if you grew up in a, let's say an unsafe atmosphere, you could never deal with what was real because it would be so threatening. And you're yeah. too young because you don't even have the cognitive capability to do it. But so children bring that in upon themselves. If you have an abusive parent, what does a kid say? Well, if I just get better grades, then maybe they won't be that way. Maybe they won't hurt me anymore. If, if I'm just perfect, like if I just do everything right. I mean, you don't have the, the ability to make the distinction at the age of eight. Like, oh, hi, you know what? You're the grown up. Why did you hand me the keys to the frigging van? Like, why am I driving? Because I'm seven. (laughs) But we don't know that. (laughs) You can't leave.
0: When you know (laughs) it, as you said, you you have to disconnect from your reality because your reality would be too mind-blowing. And you can't even make it make sense, you know? And and as you were saying, like this disassociation you have to make to sort of numb what is actually happening. Because if you were, and correct me if I'm wrong in interpreting this, but it's like if you were to actually hold on to the actual pain from the experience then it becomes you know because i think the pain from the experience exists whether whether you acknowledge it or not the truth of it exists in the core of your being and then sure. it sort of um creates this belief like i wasn't worthy of being shown up for i wasn't you know which is where as a yeah. kid you're not seeing as you were saying you're not seeing your parents going Oh, but you know, they really did the best they could. I'm five. Like, yeah, I get it. I'll get a job and drive the van and take care of my little brother and sister. Like, that's no big Um, deal.
1: Right. And you can't accept their limitations. So you Mm. turn it in. Like you, you, you can't say if you really knew how much danger you were actually in in many of those situations, it would like be too threatening. Mm. So our mind, even then your unconscious mind, we have all of these, you know, psychological defense mechanisms that will protect us from that raw data because it would be way, it would like annihilate us. So, and we love our parents no matter how they failed us, even really bad parents, like really abusive, bad people, those kids, someone who hasn't had an abusive situation, if it has never been in one would be like, I mean, I say just cut cords and buy, like cut contact. Like you don't need them. Like you don't get it. If that's your only parent, you love them and now why love is painful or elusive in your life is because you don't know how to disconnect romantic love and pain.
0: And
1: you've
0: never built the yeah. skill set to actually like say no to that, to actually step forward because you couldn't. From a survival-based perspective, you can't exactly at six be like peace out mom when that's your only survival yeah. mechanism.
1: Exactly. Cause you're like, oh, I got my own apartment. No, yeah. that's not yeah, happening. Right. <laughs> But you don't even know it's a choice. So, so much of what I find with people learning about these pillars and the, you know, it's, there's all kinds of strategies, of course, to implement this stuff and to understand and to process and to journal and letter writing. There's a, I mean, it's a very, very, very robust course because there's many ways that we need to clean up that basement, right? Your unconscious mind. I always like liken it to the basement of a house Mm. where, you know, you could clean that main floor. Like you could clean the main part of your house within an inch of its life. And if there's like a bag of shit in the basement, I don't care how much Febreze you got going, that main part of your house is going to smell weird.
0: (laughs) So I feel like we need to Maria Condi or... Um, have have you seen that, uh, show where (laughs) she like touches things and how it makes her feel, gives it, it's like, (laughs) you got to go through your unconscious, subconscious mind in your basement. You're right. If it's poopy, it's going to smell like you're not getting out of that no matter how much Febreze you use. And it's like, your shit is going to stink no matter what. Yes.
1: And like what you were saying, the pain that, that pain that exists in the core of your being is how you phrased it. Like it doesn't go away. If we were to look at another way of looking at it you know, Freud likened humans to potbelly stoves, right. And, and feelings to the smoke. Mm. And so when we want to not deal with our feelings, whether it's our conscious or our unconscious mind, that's protecting us from something that's painful. It's basically having that potbelly stove going up full, you know, just roaring and you being like, yeah, I'm going to get rid of the smoke. I'm just going to stuff a bunch of stuff down the flue. Uh-huh. So that's going to make the smoke go away. Right. Won't the smoke disappear if I do that? Uh, no." It will not. What it will do though is it will come out sideways every nook and cranny. So when that happens with feelings, you have like a transference. You like flip out on the cab driver, you like stub your toe and kick the dog, right? So when when you're having a displaced aggression moment or a transference moment, you don't even know how to fix it because you're so far away from the original injury.
0: Uh-huh. So what you're saying is there's a, like, if you're having an aggressive moment in a time, like you lose it on a taxi driver, as you said, you're trying to process, why did I just lose it on the taxi driver? But by the time that's actually happened, it's like 12 years later, and you've been stuffing stuff down the flue, hoping the smoke doesn't come out. And I'm guessing it comes out in other ways, like defensiveness, you know, stonewalling aggression, you know, the four horsemen as the Gottman talk about, but you know, these yeah. other ways that our communication and our emotion becomes very spilly you know, it's, it starts to spill out and it starts to, you know, I think a lot of, uh, about, you know, that saying hurt people, hurt people. Well, it's this, it, it becomes very contagious, you know?
1: Yeah. I think, I think the thing with the GPS analogy and why I usually use it is because it really is what's necessary. There are original injuries that continue to inform our behavior in our romantic relationships. And so the fastest way to have choice in your romantic relationships and the way you relate and how you're dating is by really getting, cleaning out the basement and being like, okay, what have I been avoiding? What is down there? So that when we're talking about self-acceptance being the third pillar, that there's, that's a very jam packed experience. And if we move into the fourth pillar you're talking about, and this I find is probably the fourth, the third one is tough, but the fourth one is probably the most resistant oh because it's self compassion. What, it?
0: what is it? Oh, it's self compassion. Self compassion. Yeah. What's tough about that for the people that you've worked with and just in your practice?
1: Well, my demographic, these high functioning women, kind of type A, they have a they but they're, they're lovers too. They're empaths as well. They are compassionate as hell towards others. They have internalized this very punitive voice, right they've internalized either the perfectionist parent who wanted something from them or they grew up in um a chaotic system, and their achievement is what saved them from that system so lots of women have and people in general have this perfectionist stuff, but for different original reasons you know yeah. and so they don't they don't see how mean they are I mean I do all these exercises like. So think about your internal voice, what it says to you when you make a mistake. Is it kind or is it caustic? Mm. And the things that you say to yourself, would you ever say them to a five-year-old child that you love with the same tone, using the same words? And I mean, of course, every person goes, "Uh, never, right, of course. So you you have to establish at least having as much compassion for yourself. And the child that you were, It isn't long ago because that wounded kid is basically the one who's like swiping on Tinder.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we want to give a um, erotically charged, um, spilly five-year-old a Tinder profile. You know, that's the, I agree with you though, you know, it's, it's, it's so much of that self-compassion if they, if no one has ever been shown it by an adult or allowed it. If they have been shown it, they probably code it as unattractive or too nice, you know, and then Mm -hmm. they're getting on Tinder and they're swiping right to people who just perpetuate that pain, who just, you know, where someone codes something as a red flag on Tinder. Others are like, yes, he's the one, you know, (laughs) like, can't wait to bring his dysfunctional unavailability into my life. It's going to be so sexy. (laughs)
1: It's going to last for so long. It's going to be great.
0: Yeah. It's going to be the best (laughs) and most treacherous four months or five decades I've ever had in my life.
1: Exactly. So we do a lot of work on self-compassion and self-care through, I mean, five senses, exercises, visualizations, and because I'm a meditation teacher and that's a big part of what I do, you know, each part of this course and each, week of the 10 weeks is like a therapeutically designed guided meditation. So basically we're hitting the unconscious mind. So we're basically cleaning the basement while you're sleeping and cleaning the basement while you're awake.
0: Mm. So there's constant, like not only observing your pain, your wounding and all that kind of stuff, you're also creating new neural pathways, new ways of thinking, new ways of being. I certainly found that meditation for me was the you know that space between stimulus and response where i would get reactive or defensive defensiveness was my mastery and i found that <laughs> well it was like i just got so good at it and i remember reading the antidote to it it was an inherited uh, reaction of course from a blueprint when I, I remember the reading the antidote to it was to say something like i can see some truth in that and it felt like i was eating my shoe it was like Ugh. it was like you can be reactive and i'm like I can see some truth in that. Oh God! But
1: they're like, say it with feeling, right? <laughs> and it
0: was, it was, it had to feel sort of fraudulent at first because I was so busy defecting, defending my self worth, and defending, you know, myself that I, it was also the first moment that I ex- ever experienced connectivity after some feedback or criticism, you know, depending on the wording of the experience, but. It was the first time I ever experienced connectivity where I used to build a wall and it was it's so transformational and medi- yeah. meditation taught me how to extend the space between trigger and response.
1: Mark, I cannot believe you're saying that. Yeah, I cannot like, believe you're saying that. That's, why? that's so wild. I've been for years, I started meditating 20 years ago and was terrible type A could never learn, did a million things, a million weekends, open centers and just couldn't make it happen. And then finally got hooked into the Chopra Center of Deepak Chopra and David Simon, David G, a bunch of people. And I finally found my home and that was where I learned to meditate. But the most profound thing I said after the first 21 days of doing 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes um, in the late afternoon was that I gained like three seconds mm. of response time in every situation. And that's basically exactly what you're saying. That's just so cool.
0: Yeah, it was, it was such, it was, it's probably the most powerful skill I've ever, and I continue to develop because it's so easy when I'm going through change or I'm stressed. Of course, what do we humans mostly do? We kick out the things we need, <laughs> like, oh, nutritious food, get by exercise, get out of here. Meditation, I don't need you. But of course, those are the exact things you need when you're in those experiences. Yeah.
1: It's so true. You're like, first to go, everything. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Like everything I actually need, you know, the anchors that hold you true to who you are. And for sure, like, you know, you know, a lot of the work that I've done with people where they say like, but I don't, I don't want the trigger anymore. I don't want the wound. Like when does it go away? And I'm like, it doesn't. It's what you do Mm -hmm. with it that changes. The wound is important. The trigger is important because it's your radar that says, Hey, a pattern that we've known, we might code it wrong, but we know that something here might be off. And in the past, it led to pain. And so I think when we can start to see our triggers as these really beautiful gifts that allow us, you know, I, I say to everybody that you're you're really just Yoda sitting on a bunch of amazing wisdom, and it's all sitting in the moments of your life that are the most painful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And and I also think that when, when we, the, the thing with triggers and with wounds is that, If they're still charged, Mm. there's many steps that you can take by honoring them, by processing them, by honoring the child within you who experienced, who was whatever age that was when you got that wound. So by really, I do a bunch of ritualistic things around this because it does deserve your attention. And the the kid in you who's still stuck at that eight-year-old experience deserves someone to listen to him or her. There's got to be some witnessing of like, this happened and it was super messed up. This happened and this is how it impacted me. And I'm still pissed off. And it's like 40 years later. And when you go through this process of actually honoring those experiences, it's not about wallowing, you know, as a psychotherapist, I know that there's lots of psychotherapists and analysts who like just love live to be in the past. I'm definitely not one of them. I was way more of a coach always from the beginning. I was like, I got zero interest in third grade unless (laughs) something that happened in third grade is basically making you not be able to get what you want in life now.
0: Then Uh, very interested. So beautiful. In that thing. Yeah. You know? And I I love that you bring that forward because I think, you know, and I I think we're in this culture of this experience where You know, it's so easy to get caught in the cycle of thinking you're a problem that needs to be solved, that you need another book, that you need a, what we need is integration. What we need is to Mm -hmm. work with someone who takes our past and makes it, you know, kind of looks at it like an archaeologist, as Dr. Alexander Solomon calls it, like going back Mm -hmm. and looking at it like an archaeologist and then bringing that, how does that show up for you today? As you said, the self-acceptance part, the self-awareness, looking at you, the self-knowledge, who are you, where do you come from? The self-acceptance, okay, I accept where I come from and how it shows up. And then that self-compassion, I have love for that journey. God, that's like such a beautiful, and as you said, uh, not, and and as I can fully understand, not always puppy dogs and ice cream, of course. Um, But when you get through it to this step four, this pillar four, I mean, you must see people just melt.
1: Oh, well, they're just so relieved. Mostly, what I see is people just feeling like they just put down like a huge ass boulder <laughs> that they've been carrying for four decades. Yeah. They're like, "I'm so light. I just feel so light. My spirit, my mind." <sighs> but we need all of those. Those four lead up to the final one, which is the one that we're in forever, hopefully. Which is basically self love, self celebration. Mm. So we're past love, acceptance of what happened in our lives and of ourselves right? Loving ourselves where we are now. We have all of those things. But when you get to the last one, what, what I, what I'm basically teaching people is the way you relate to yourself, the way you treat yourself, like to really think about it, like you set the bar. So if you treat yourself like shit, if you don't value your time, if you don't rest when you're tired, if you give people money who you know are not going to frigging pay you back, if you feel obligated, if you're a high-functioning codependent, right, that's like having the disease to please, but you don't think you do, this is a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, you're just an women.
0: empath. Yeah. You know, I'm just yeah. empathic.
1: Yeah. hmm No, it's, you know, the thing with, with the codependency, because we could do, literally, we could talk for about seven hours about on codependency because it is so fascinating. Oh,
0: my God. It's one of my and, favorite subjects.
1: Yeah, mine too, because it is, it creates so much pain. And when you really start to learn that game, and I actually do a lot of decoding of this in the Real Love Revolution course, it, it is so liberating. I needed a psychotherapist to tell me who I'd been in therapy with for years, myself, me as the patient, to basically school me in what I was actually doing. I thought I was being a great sister although I was overwhelmed and exhausted and broke from all I was doing. So one of my sisters had a lot of problems, you know, in life, addiction, all these things, you know, divorce and custody. And there was always something. Mm. And finally my therapist was like, Tara, I have a question. What makes you think that, you know, what lessons she needs to learn in this life? I was like, well, I think we can all agree. That, you know, it doesn't have to be her like dating a guy who beats her living in the woods with no running water, whatever she was doing at that point. It was many years ago, thank God. But, and she was like, no, I absolutely cannot agree because I'm not God. Like I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know what she needs to learn, but it's not for you to say.
0: Wow. And that, you know, I think about when we all try to save people from the bottom you know, that we're trying to help them, trying to fix them, trying to heal them. And we're just an empath and that's just what we do. And, you know, and, and when you're trying to save someone from the bottom, remember you're in it, <laughs> you're at the bottom because you have to catch right, them. But what do you,
1: right. But what are you really doing though, Mark? If we, if we really think about it, cause this was the reframe that really changed that all for me. Yeah. She's like, you, you really, my Ruth, my therapist at the time said, You know, I was like, I just don't want her to be in a bad relationship, this and that. And she was like, Tara, you just want, you know, you also want your pain to stop. Um, So her disastrous life is really messing with the peace that you've spent decades creating inside of you. And you really just would like that pain to stop. And I was like, Oh my God, totally. So we love to be like, I'm just empathic. I'm just a mother earth. I just love people. I don't know. Or I just want my pain to stop, which is what it's really about. Yeah. We're uncomfortable.
0: Right. On the deeper level, we're trying to heal theirs to heal ours. Is that the concept?
1: Yes and no. Yes. We're trying to stop their pain and, and like prevent them from making disastrous decisions. Like we have all of this ownership over people's um, outcomes, choices, situations yeah. that are not ours. Right. So this is, we know this is codependency, but it's, it's a compulsion from growing up in whatever your particular flavor of, you know, why you became codependent. Some women, it's simply because we are just socialized that way. Just yeah, we're the, absolutely. the connectors, you know?
0: Yeah. That women are socialized to take care of everyone and give up themselves, you know? And, yep, and that being such an easy, I mean, the whole model of patriarchy is essentially codependency. And that's why when anyone goes like, I don't want to be codependent. I'm like, well, you inherited it. So first off, don't get too angry about it. You know, you weren't taught any other model, you know, for the most part. And, and i have been fascinated by my observation of people who date addicts which of course is like more of the more extreme pretty obvious codependency but when yeah
1: more melody Beatty codependency
0: yeah yeah and when and and when that person they're trying to fix heal save gets sober they all of a sudden start to go nutty cuz they don't have a job anymore you know, and yep. and then is that this like, well, now they have to turn towards themselves. And I, I often think if you're putting so much effort and time and trying to save people, like it, it, it is such a distraction and avoidance of our own self-work sometimes.
1: Oh, yeah. But then we're also frustrated and pissed. And this is why we, we act it out, because then you end up in the martyr place because there's nowhere else to go, you know.
0: And the martyr place is powerful. You know, there's a lot of power in being a martyr until you realize that it's totally powerless. But I've often thought too, that the martyr is actually at the top of the matrix. It just doesn't feel like it. But you know, that they are the ones who are managing and using this, what seems like a powerless state in an extreme state of power.
1: Yes, they are wielding it like a big stick. But when you get healthy, if you're dealing with someone who is martyring I will straight up say, Oh, hey, you know what, Betty? I'm absolutely not taking that on. That was your choice of your own free will. So there's no strings that you just created. Like, after everything I've done free will, I hope that everything you've done for me, you've done out of your own free will. Because I certainly didn't hold a gun to your head. Like, I will definitely call someone out and probably, you know, a little nicer than that. But
0: I like that. I would definitely say that was really not my thing. That was. Betty, right. I think would eat her own shoe in that case right there. You know, I do love that. It's like, <laughs> it's a- cause you do hear that line, you know, it's such a standard line. I've heard it used so many times. I've heard it used by friends, parents, you know, it's like after all I've done for you. And it's like, Oh God, like that just is, it's such a passive form of manipulation. Oh, just no.
1: Who asked you to, I just literally will say, but who asked you to do it? Nobody. Yeah. So that's between you and you, Betty. Anyway, <laughs> I have something really exciting I want to tell you about. I want to, end, I want to, can I tell you?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Cause we could probably talk about Betty for a long time. And I think we'll have to bring you back <laughs> on to really explore codependency too. Cause I think what you, the, the phrase you just used will save a lot of people in dealing with their guilt causing mothers, you know, so it'll be a real <laughs> or guilt causing fathers. I don't mean to pick one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, please tell us, please tell us.
1: I'm going to, but you know what we should do, Mark? We should do a whole thing just on scripts.
0: Scripts Oh yeah. What a great idea.
1: When you're dealing with, you know, codependent people, scripts, when you're dealing with a boundary bully, scripts, when you're dealing with people passively trying to manipulate you, you know what I mean? Like to be able to, how do you call it out? And then what do you say?
0: Yeah. Because of course it's finding the language, you know, that's the hard part. That's the real hard part.
1: That is definitely the hard part. All right. So I have a very exciting thing happening and it's happening on the 30th of this month and the 31st. So for all of the women in your audience,
0: we got lots of those.
1: I'm not anti-men. I know you do, but I'm also not anti-men. I love men. Actually, I'm, I'm creating stuff for men right now because I have probably about 20% of my audience is like, Hi, what about us? So I am creating something for guys. But right now I have these masterclass training that I'm doing. So one of them is three ways to reignite, refuel, or rethink your relationship in 2019. Right? So this is for women who are in relationships and they know their relationship could be better, but they just have no idea how to make it better. Mm -hmm. Or they're in a relationship and it looks perfect from the outside, but they don't feel satisfied and then they feel guilty. Or they're in a relationship that they know sucks, but they have no idea how to get out of it. So that that, that's who that one is for. And then the other one is called Three Smart Steps to Attract Lasting Love. And that's for women who are wanting to be partnered, but rather than basically finding their soulmate, they would like to figure out how to remove all of the crap and misinformation that's been basically covering up their love light forever get all of that off, allow that light to become so bright that their beloved will find them.
0: I like that, like a beacon.
1: That's Yes, it's just like a lighthouse because that's exactly how I see these women. They get all that mud off, that misunderstanding, that weird self-worth, and suddenly they're just shining. And I cannot tell you, I have so many people, like the amount of success stories that are so beautiful that I bawl my eyes out every time I read them. Just people constantly sending me things like, "I don't have." I told you I got married. I just got something two days ago. I'm not sure if I told you I got married uh, on January 1st. Uh-huh. I'm like, you didn't, because when I met you a year ago, you were about to, you were so unhappy in a ten year terrible relationship. She's like, yeah, I met this guy. He's per, it's amazing. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not promising magic. I am uh-huh. promising really solid tools, strategies, and in both of the master classes whether you're in a relationship or whether you're single for the women, I'm handling scripts. I'm doing scripts for conflict resolution, which I feel like for the relationship one is great. And then texting scripts when you're dating, like what do you text back when the person says, Hey, you're like, well, Uh, Hello. Hey, what is there more to that? So anyway, we've got a bunch of clever psychological ways of basically honoring yourself in the interact and in in the interaction. So it's not about five texts to get the guy. It's how to communicate and actually honor your worth, how to be the director instead of a bit player in this experience.
0: Yeah, what a great way to transform it rather than this place from psychological manipulation that it's actually from a place of high self-worth. And as you do it, it constructs high self-worth, which is really a beautiful part. When you see a text go out that you're like... (gasps) And then you get a, back, you know, an answer back that's interactive and honoring you and, and, and all of that. Then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I actually think I love myself. This is amazing. Which is, <laughs>
1: you're like, this is so
0: good. So
1: people can just go to terrycole.com forward slash live single for the, all the single ladies or terrycole.com forward slash live relationship for all the other ladies in relationships. And I, I know that you, you know, you have all the links.
0: Yeah, we'll put all the links in the show notes so no one has to worry about that. Man, those sound amazing. And I look forward to the people listening to this. If either of those courses resonate with you for the men, there's stuff coming out. I have some stuff coming out for both genders. So there's always something you can find for your flavor. And Terry, this has been a lot of fun. I think we need to hop back on and do some uh, codependency conversation boundaries. Of course, Uh, being able to share your five pillars, I think has just been, you know, to get a window into your experience and. Clinical practice and in your work, and I really resonate with this concept that you don't really sit in someone's past; that it's all about creating a desired future, and and that's certainly what I'm all about too. And I'm really, you know, having gone from listening to your podcast to now having you on mine is kind of like fanboy moment. So. I'm really, really grateful that you do the work you do and that you're out there fighting the good fight and inspiring and teaching these like really amazing skill sets that everyone needs. And your courses sound really delicious. I don't think there's any other way to explain them. And, and just thank you so much for being you. Perfect. And make sure everyone you go check out her podcast. It's so good. And thanks again, Terry. Wow. I feel like I could have Terry Cole on again so many times just to talk about all the subjects that we just danced in, you know, the depths of them, because I just nerd out on so many of them. And I know that you guys would, too. And before we go, I wanted to remind you guys of the exciting program that I'm launching with Kylie. And that's just a five day challenge that's coming up right before Valentine's Day. So all you have to do is go to bit.ly backslash matemagnet, so B-I-T dot L-Y backslash M-A-T-E-M-A-G-N-E-T, and sign up now. It's absolutely free, and it's going to be so much fun, and we're going to get you to the place, if you are single, where you will be magnetizing these beautiful beings into your life. And last but not least, uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, it is absolutely so helpful if you can leave a five-star review and a written review, it really helps to elevate the, you know, sort of the game of the podcast and get it into the ears of the people who need it. So thanks again for all your support. I hope you all have the most wonderful week.